Okay, everyone, let's be honest here. Whether you are living abroad or at home, having a financial plan is vital to charting your financial future. I know that some of us really don't like talking about money because it can be overwhelming, which is why you may want to consider speaking with the professionals at Smith Brewer Advisors. From retirement to investment management and estate and tax planning, an experienced financial advisor at Smith Brewer Advisors will help you create a plan to meet your financial goals. And what's awesome? They empower their clients to make the right decisions for their individual situation. To learn more about working with a fiduciary financial advisor, visit smithbreweradvisors.com. Proud sponsors of the Global Chatter podcast. Smith Brewer Advisors LLC is a registered investment advisor with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Hey everyone, Amanda Bates here, founder of the Black Expat, and I'm glad you're joining me this week. My next guest is Matsabi Ruper. And Matsabi is a race, identity, and belonging expert who is passionate about supporting parents to build belonging, healthy racial identity, and strong self-esteem in children of mixed and Black heritage living in predominantly white spaces and contexts. You could say her interest in this work stems from her own childhood experiences as the child of a former Black South African activist and a white British journalist who met during apartheid. Much of our conversation is underscored by the messages she received about race and identity while growing up in Britain after her parents separated. In this episode, we explore those experiences and the lessons on identity she felt were conveyed. We also discuss her early career in diplomacy and human rights and why she chose to leave it behind. And she shares why she also coaches parents to build self-esteem of their mixed-race children in many ways, giving them the support that she wished she had gotten as a child. Matsabi's personal experiences have guided the work she does today, and I can't wait for you to hear how. Welcome to the Global Chatter. I think that today's discussion is going to be a fun one. We all know I say this every episode. It's not going to change. I have the coolest guests that come on the show. And so there's there is no reason to think otherwise about this episode. And so from the intro, you know that I have Masabi with me today. And how are you? I'm well, thank you, Manza. I'm really excited to be here and be in the cool category already. <laughs> By the virtue of being here, you're already in the cool category. So okay. it can it can only keep getting better from here. <laughs> you guys can't see us, but we're definitely laughing about this because, you know, every episode I get excited about the stories that are going to be revealed. And I think that there's so much wonderful depth that we're going to hear in your story. And so this is the first question I ask almost every guest uh, <laughs> because it's just a fun one. Where in the world are you currently sitting? So I'm currently sat in my office in London, in South London. Yeah, I've been here for the last couple of weeks because two weeks before now, I was in South Africa for about two months. And we were talking off air about weather, which always seems to work its way to conversations with me because it is at the time of the recording winter in <laughs> in the northern part of the world. And if you were in South Africa, I would imagine it was not it winter. It was summer. It was summer. It's what, so in, in SA, it's what we call December. So it's like, because that's when they have the school holidays, right, in December. Yeah. So it's like a big party. Everyone takes time off and it's very much summer and I'm very much missing it, honestly. <laughs> and now you're in London weather, which I imagine yeah. is not sunny and no, or warm. Not at all. So I'm definitely, like, it's really motivating me to continue working on my plan to at least spend, you know, four of the coldest months a year there. Oh my gosh. And so I think that that's going to, that's a really good jumping point into starting to get a little bit in your background. And so where did you grow up? So I, I grew up here in London for, yeah, until I was seven. I grew up in a, quite a multicultural area called Brixton in South London. Um, and then at the age of seven, I moved to possibly one of the whitest areas you can find um, just on the outskirts of London uh, with my mum when my parents separated and I was there for about two years lots of experiences being the only kind of black and brown face around um, and also in my family and then moved back to London 
And then from the age of, um, from university, really, because here in the UK, you know, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but you move away for university. So I went to the north of England to a place called Leeds to do my degree, during which I did a year abroad. And then as soon as I came back, I just started the international career, I guess, careers <laughs> that I'm still still kind of in. Oh, my gosh. OK, so there's a lot there. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> As I'm looking at you and I'm like, ooh, let's kind of unpack that. So you grew up in a multicultural area, at least until the age of seven. And so what were the background or what is the background of your parents? So my mom is British and my dad is South African. So um, they actually met towards the end of apartheid in South Africa because my mom was a journalist and she was documenting the end of that. Um, my dad wow. was an activist. Um and yeah, so basically, as things got really bad, because at the time, you know, if you were black and political, you were basically on the run and the government was trying yeah. to kill you, um, to put it simply. Yeah, it was pretty soon after they met, basically, he needed to get out of the country because they were killing his cell, essentially, that the people that he was political with. So he got a scholarship from the British Council and came to the UK and studied lived with my mom and a few years later I came along so yeah interestingly enough you aren't the first person I've had who's fought whose whose parents were political activists in in Africa um I had a couple on who the husband his father and his mother in Zambia say you know kind of in the same in the 60s 70s had to flee yeah and they they fled they fled to to California and then they couldn't go back for the longest time because they were they were being, for lack of a better word, hunted, right? Yeah. Because they were against the, the the government powers that be. And so that has to be really interesting. I mean, your mom was a journalist, your dad was an activist, kind of growing up in that environment. And I mean, and that that, that makes you kind of a cross-cultural kid, right? Because your dad had his South African background, your mother had her British background. And so obviously, you know, you mentioned your your parents separated, but even growing up, did you see yourself as part South African? Did you see that identity at all? Or what did you see? Yeah, I did. I did. And I think I always had this sense of wanting to learn and bring more of that into my house. Because, you know, I think like what can happen, at least in that generation to a lot of here, we don't say bright, bright racial in the UK, we say mixed families, is you end mm -hmm. up within the family centering the culture of the, you know, the country you're in. Or in many cases, you know, the kind of culture that's closest to whiteness. There are a few ways that happened in my family. I think the, the the main one is that my dad didn't speak to me in his mother tongue, um, which obviously has a huge impact when you do that, you know, because it meant that it was harder for me when we did those times we did go back to South Africa to connect with family, you know, even my grandmother or I have a half brother and sister there. And I spent quite a few years just unpacking that and thinking about and understanding why that is because it turns out that's pretty common <laughs> and yeah it really in the case of my dad it really links back to in his specific case trauma um because actually in you know in South Africa at the time under apartheid um it was absolutely enforcing this hierarchy and the black languages were deemed as secondary so I think even though he understood on a political pain um or political level that you know, I'm fighting against racism. I think some of those more subtle, like psychological legacies continued and he didn't quite see them. And then they kind of replicated themselves within my within my upbringing and my life. So I understood that I was African, but I think there were, you know, ways in which I couldn't fully access that part of my heritage until I was much older and able to kind of take that into my hands a lot more, which I continue to do. So you were able, as a child at least, to go to South Africa and at least connect with the family who was there? I was. And you know what? I am so grateful for that. I mean, I, I think I just clung on to that and ran with it as fast as I could. So as soon as, you know, I was able to kind of save up, you know, early 20s and, you know, go there myself and, and strengthen those relationships, I did. And it was because we went just those two times. I went two times in my whole childhood. But that was enough to have, you know, a connection with people, to have people's numbers and to be able to rekindle and really make an effort to grow those relationships as I as as an adult. Um, so, yeah, I am so grateful. And yeah, that's, that's something I absolutely bring into my work 
um, now as well. You're not the first person I've actually heard say that where there is a entire cultural framework outside of the one that they've grown up in, where they're going to go meet extended family, where no, they didn't. And, and it really runs the gamut. Maybe, yes, they did go every year or every two years, or maybe they went twice <laughs> or yeah. three times their whole childhood. And it's amazing to see sort of that, oh, I have this place, right? Where where this part of me is tethered to and I understand, especially when, and I think you describing, you know, once you fam your family moved from Brixton, I am sure then going from a very non-multicultural space <laughs> and always being the other, right? Yeah. There's, there's some reprieve in being somewhere where there's like, oh, this part of my identity is affirmed. And so I'm, I'm fascinated because, you know, as I said, definitely, I would say you are a cross-cultural kid. You have parents of different backgrounds for a variety of reasons. What then was it like growing up as someone who has this South African identity? You've got a white mom. You're no longer in this multicultural space. Like, what was that experience looking back for you? I think it was shaped by race and racialization for me. So for a long time, and this is like, this is from when I was seven and I was living, you know, with my mom um her and then after a while her partner and the only black brown face in my in the family that I had contact with I had a completely different experience just going to school walking down the road to what they had right and there wasn't much space in my house to talk about that and so I didn't really develop a language to talk about that and what that meant is that I for a long time thought it was in my head and for a long time also thought I was you know there was something wrong with me like I was I was um kind of mentally not okay that I was making it up um and actually I think some of that probably started before um my parents split up because you know what happens is if you if you're so we say we say mixed if you're walking down the road with one parent the white parent you know, it's all kind of smiles, you know, doors are open, very welcoming. And then depending on the levels of anti-blackness in the area, if I then walk down the same road at the same time with my dad, it's a very, very different experience. Um, mm. Now, my parents wouldn't necessarily fully know that because, like, you know, I'm walking down the road with one, I'm walking down the road with other, and the other. Right. And I think as a kid, you know, we are so sensitive when we do pick up on these things. So it would, I think it would have started there, and I do remember that. But it was then heightened when my dad wasn't on the scene so much, and that was amplified by not living in a multicultural area. Um, just the aggression that I was picking up on, um, I didn't, I internalised basically, because there wasn't, you know, there wasn't that language, there wasn't that space to critically reflect and think about it with an adult. And mm. so I did what most kids, you know, would do, which is, you know, you end up, I, I blamed myself. I thought there was something wrong with me. I thought if I'm picking up on aggression, you know, I don't have that whole history, that whole co context to to bring to my understanding. I think, oh, there's something I've done. There's something that's wrong with me. So that led to a, a huge lack of confidence, you know, really low levels of self-esteem and a lot of anxiety um, pretty much throughout my childhood that I have spent a lot of my adulthood undoing and I'm very proud of actually but yeah I think that was what shaped my experience in particular. You know I've asked this question I, I had uh, Jerry Jones who is really cool uh, not the owner of the, unless you watch American football, some people would think I'm talking about the football coach. I'm not. <laughs> this is actually someone else who he has two children, um, him, him and his wife have adopted. One is Asian American identity. The other one is African American identity, mm. right? And him and his wife are white. And so, you know, we, we spent a lot, we actually had to do a two-part episode talking yeah. about what are the things he had to be aware of as a white parent who quite frankly had two children of color. And the thing is mm. they were expats. So wow. what was, what was even crazier, not crazy in a bad way, they were expats in China mm. and had an Asian <laughs> daughter and they had a black son. <laughs> right. And so everybody's experience was something different for all yeah. kinds of reasons. Amazing. 
<laughs> right. And, 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 and then George Floyd happened and the questions and the conversation he had to have with his son. Mm. Right. And so I'm curious because Jerry didn't grow up traveling, didn't grow up in a international space. He didn't travel until he was a young adult as well. With your mom, did you feel and, and that there wasn't an awareness or there was an awareness, but not necessarily, a not necessarily sure how to address sort of the racial conversations mm -hmm. and the racial identity or the situations? So I think, I think there was maybe the wrong awareness, <laughs> right? Okay. So in her, Fair. in her mind, you know, cause she was a journalist. She, before she had me in, in the eighties, she was doing quite political you know, documentaries about political topics across the world. So her hmm. understanding of racism was very crude. It was apartheid. It was segregation. It was, um, you know, these really in-your-face forms where you might right. have a white minority government oppressing in law, right, like a black right. majority right. population. Right. However, in the UK, still today, the way in which racism plays out is much subtler. Right. And I think if that was a framing for both my parents, apartheid, you know, they that's that's their understanding of racism so they are not I think they weren't aware enough of the nuanced way in which it plays out here and so they were aware of the topic but absolutely not aware of what I was going through and you know a lot of um, people of colour go through in the UK and I think actually I was thinking you know the, the whole experience with Meghan Markle and I don't, I don't know if you saw the documentary she did was actually really helpful, I think, in like in that documentary, <laughs> in, in slightly highlighting the ways in in how like how much you can feel gaslit, experience racism, experiencing racism in the UK because everything's so polite, and they want to really say you know the word that would mean they need to be called out. Still really insidious, and it's still really really harmful, but it means it's deniable. Mm -hmm. so it means that you can you know in my case really think it's in your head because if someone's saying all the right things but still being aggressive and passive aggressive in the way that you say it, you will still pick up on it and you will still 100% feel it but those around you if they're not experiencing that directly won't necessarily pick up on it themselves so I have empathy and understanding of their context but I think they were looking the wrong way not fully looking um and the other thing is I think they fell into this trap that you know if you're in a mixed relationship it's relatively easy to fall into that you think okay great had this mixed kid I've cured racism like <laughs> we've done it you know we've mixed this kid's come along um and especially when you look at stats like it's the fastest growing population in the UK like it's so easy to and people you know I can understand the desire to want to believe this that it's over like it's not going to be the majority um and I think they really fell into that they really really fell into that and the other thing I would say I guess maybe in their defense is there wasn't really as much research into this as there is now. You know, we had amazing sociologists who were really starting to document and piece it together, but still it takes a few years for that research to come out. So it was looking backwards. And I think a lot of people in the UK at, at the time, we had like a Labour government and the buzzword was multiculturalism. Everyone wanted to buy into this dream. And I think my parents did too, which is why they didn't pick up on it. You know, and I think you highlighted something that for all the good or bad you can say about Americans, we are loud and we're very consistent. Yeah. And if there's anything to call out, which is, I think, why also Meghan Markle is probably driving the paparazzi nuts, mm. is that Americans just good or bad loud, right or wrong. Right. If 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 it comes to calling something out. Americans tend to call stuff out and especially when it comes to race yeah. especially if you have a black identity we are not that polite yeah <laughs> as we know I mean if you're not in the U.S. it's amazing to me how much you can see what's trending in the U.S. when something goes down you could be as far away yeah. but somebody will know because 
black voices here tend to be loud mm-hmm. and let it be known. Right. And so I think that you have just framed and given actually some really good context, both, I think, to your life, but I think even contemporarily, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to people know this. I'm listening to Prince Harry's audio books. Really? So. I, <laughs> oh, yeah, I can't wait. Oh, my gosh. I got it. <laughs> <laughs> he, he narrates it, so it's great. Yeah. And this is the first audio. This has nothing to do with anything. This is the first audio, but I'm usually a, I read the book, but I was like, let me listen to it. It's super long. And he 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 narrates. But I think a lot of the stuff is, that has been in the press and the media of recent has been also referring to the impact of the racism, the comments, whatever that his wife has faced. Yeah both in and out, both within the, the, the royal family and out. And so I think you actually in your own <laughs> life has just sort of given context for those of us who, who are not in those communities and in the UK and don't necessarily know them. And so here's where here's where I'm really interested in. Even with all this context and you you started early and you, you talked about, OK, you you ended up going to university. I'm assuming the University of Leeds. Yeah, Is that where you yeah, ended up? Yeah. Cool. OK, but I know somewhere in your story. You went to, was it Honduras? Honduras, Guatemala, Spain, (laughs) you name it, yeah. Was that while you were in university or before or after or during, like when? Yeah, okay, so we, um, so that was during university. So before the UK left the EU, um, we were allowed to do something called Erasmus. Have you heard of it? Okay, so basically it was a fully funded, it was amazing, year abroad that the, the European Union would pay for you know, as part of their project of like integration across Europe, you know, this idea that you get to meet other people your age and maybe one day you start a business and then you connect. So I got this fully funded year in Spain. And actually the reason I went to Spain, so I was as part of my degree doing some Spanish modules. So I was pretty fluent by then, but um, I should take it a step back actually, because before then, before going to university, I don't know if it's the same in the US, but traditionally you can do what's called a gap year. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a traditional thing here. So you um, basically you finished high school and you want a bit of a break because you've just, you know, gone through exam after exam after exam. Um, and basically you get a year off and you get to, you secure your university space before and you defer by a year. So that's all secured. And, you know, most of us spend, I don't know, maybe half the year earning some money to then be able to travel for the second half of the year. And what I did with mine, because I knew I was going to study international development at university, was I thought, well, I probably need to see what, you know, what is this? Why are we dividing this world into so-called developed and so-called underdeveloped? Like, let me go and understand what this means. You know, let me go to a quote unquote underdeveloped country, but also let me go to one that's Spanish speaking because I'm pretty fluent and I'm going to be tested on it in uni. So I, yeah, I went, I went to Honduras, San Pedro Sula. I worked with a, a bilingual English project in a in a school there, which was really interesting for many reasons. And yeah, just the way that race is kind of understood is all, again a different context, right? Um, mm-hmm. Different words. I almost want to. I, I don't think we swear on this podcast, do you? <laughs> but like, I would, people swear. People swear. Okay, <laughs> I kind of want to say it's like the same shit but a different flavor, like. It's not that anyone or any particular country's racism, you can definitively say is better or worse, right? It's different. It's like a different flavor and it has its own challenges. So there, although I wasn't at the brunt end of it, you know, I could absolutely see its, its dynamics and its setups there as well. But anyway, that's the question. So yeah, I did that for six months. Um, came back, went to uni, did a year in Spain where I got to study um, some development um, and economics at a university in Spain. Um, and then, yeah, that really set me up for what very, very quickly after university became um, my career, which initially was in diplomacy. You mentioned, you, you know, you were going to university for in, international development. I'm going to touch on the Honduran thing in a minute. But what was your trigger for wanting to do that or study that or look into that? Yeah. And you know what? I still sometimes ask myself that question. Um, you know, how idealistic was I? Right. Like, did I think I was going to be some kind of quote unquote savior? <laughs> right. And, and like the truth, the truth to that uncomfortable question is probably quite uncomfortable. And I'm still I'm picking what I can say is 
I always had an interest and an awareness in the world. Being part South African, I was aware that my dad's context in which he grew up in, in which I had a brother and sister, in which I had a grandmother and a cousin, was totally different um, and a lot poorer and looked a lot different than than my context. And so, and I think there's something about being the only in a lot of situations. I was always on the lookout for like, where are people who look like me? And very quickly realized, okay, a lot of them aren't in this country or in on this continent. Um, you know, where what are these countries? Like, where are we? <laughs> right. So I think some of my interest stemmed from them and that then led me into, yeah real interest in history and you know all those kinds of studies and studying international development was a way of piecing it all together because you look at the history the politics the economics um of you know collection of countries a region of the world and also you get to do some bring in hopefully and definitely in the case of when I did my master's some kind of critical analysis of that as well so I think it was probably my own story um an interest leading me into that awareness and then wanting to just understand the world. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. So if you're joining us from after the break, we really got to the start of your story, uh, Masabi, working in international development. And I, I, I'm, I'm curious now, you know, you talked about how you got into it and, and it was actually really interesting <laughs> what you laid out there. <laughs> so what what did you how did you end up working for the government and what did you what was your transition into that job? Yeah, so it was quite random. <laughs> I think like I look back and I join the dots and there was definitely this theme of being interested in the world, caring about the world being aware of inequalities and I guess idealistically thinking what can I do to bridge them but it was luck in terms of how I ended up in my first job um, which was working for the EU Foreign Service in Guatemala in that I attended on one of my last days of university a presentation basically you know how when you're leaving uni all these employers come and they say come work with us anyway this one lady had come to Leeds to the UK from Brussels on the Eurostar to talk about the EU um basically because not enough Brits knew what it was and they weren't you know we were meant to be represented in that organism and we we were disproportionately not and um she just did a big style really and she said all the buzzwords like you get to travel and we actually have a foreign service because most people didn't know. We just thought it was like individual countries that have their foreign service. And the the and I think it helped that she was a woman as well. But the 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 career she described, and she described it as being multicultural, you know, people coming together from different countries. I was like, yes, I want in. So there are a couple of like grad programs and it paid internships. I applied to one thinking I was going to Brussels to learn French and it turns out they had what they call like a junior professional program 
in one of their delegations and because of my Spanish and because of what I'd studied they sent me to Guatemala and I had the most amazing I want to say I want to say training ground but that's quite rude right because this is like so for people you know living that reality you know that's that's like the, the situation was really really hard right like post-conflict don't want to go too much down the history but like things were very very raw like a lot of people died and um, there were a lot of tensions between the previously warring groups and there was a lot of healing that's you know still to be done and even though you know it, it ended like 97 it still felt very very fresh it was a really really challenging first post that really made me dig deep and like really take time to understand the history take time to understand the dynamics if you wanted to be able to relate to anyone and really hear anyone and really understand anyone so yeah I ended up working there for just under four years I initially thought I was going out for six months (laughs) so that's how I yeah ended up there basically so I'm fascinated because I've I've talked to diplomats most of them have been almost all of them have been American so I'm very interested as as someone who was serving in the British Foreign Service, what typically does the makeup look like, right? So one of the things that the U.S. Foreign Service has been working towards has been diversifying very intentionally since at least the 90s, right? Especially gender, especially uh, individuals of color. What was the British Foreign Service looking like, at least when you joined? Yeah. So initially, and for most of that posting, I wasn't even in the British Foreign Service. I was in the EU Foreign Service. Mm. So it was an even odder room, right? <laughs> because there were very few Brits who were in that space. Because it, so the idea is you had EU member states, yeah, the EU countries, the embassies were present, but there was also this EU delegation that was meant to bring everyone together and allow people to lobby as a group and influence as a group. In that space, I was the only non-national person of colour, the only black person, identifies black mixed race. And the impact that had on me, because in a way, no change, right? Like my whole life, I was used to that in my family, in my school, in university, because people of colour are underrepresented in being able to study languages in the UK, because you get to really get to the right level if you go to private school, you know, all of these barriers. But for me, that was same old. But what it meant in that context is I was quite dissociated. So I'm not saying I didn't do a good job because, you know, you're there to follow a brief. And I absolutely did. But the themes that that brief was touching on, because so much of it was about human rights, should have been deeply personal to me. And I had empathy but I couldn't relate it back to the personal in the way that truly underneath it all, it really did. Because the parallels are unbelievable between Guatemala and South Africa. So a lot of these stories, a lot of these experiences, it could have been my family, it could have been my dad. And I totally dissociated and shut that off um, as my coping mechanism. And I think because of that room... (laughs) And because that's what I think I had to do, because that remembered my experience in my family. And that's what I had to do in my family to survive, right? I had to block out a lot of the owning up to the levels of racism. Too painful. So I think I echoed that there. I did spend some time in the British Foreign Service. And, you know, I think not all member states, but certainly like, sorry, the UK isn't a member state of the EU anymore, but in the British Foreign Service, you know, today, somewhat still work alongside colleagues from there in my current job, but they um, have done a lot to diversify. And you are starting to definitely see, and you, I was at the time, people of colour coming through and representing the UK, and therefore a true version of the UK, right? But nowhere near as diverse as the US Embassy. And the US Embassy was a real inspiration for me at the time, actually, because there was this amazingly outspoken Black US ambassador at the time was under Obama and he was so outspoken and the levels of racism he faced in the in the media and he did not go silent (laughs) was inspirational inspirational and I just you know I couldn't fully relate myself I couldn't imagine myself doing that and getting to that place 
but it was inspirational to me. It's super funny to hear like someone else say how diverse they see the American Foreign Service <laughs> and the big American to be like, it's not diverse enough. It's not enough. It's, it's not, not enough. Let me say it's not enough, but it is. It's man, isn't it crazy though? Like I say, when you where you sit on the spectrum of things, it's like right. For me, I'm like, oh my gosh, it could be so much diverse more diverse in the way it is and and for someone else it's like we're not even there yet like the yeah. fact that you're there and and doing what you're doing and so that's that's kind of cool actually um sorry that has nothing to do with your story it's just my brain going no it's interesting it's, it's perspective right and right. I think it's it's that bad right we're both like oh my and, god I'm, right I'm not even touching on the other EU member states like if you take Italy you know I have a lot of I'm currently working with a lot of Italian mums and they struggle to even like find resources that even mention black uh, black people in their history and black people have been in Italy like there were black Roman um, emperors like so so, it really just depends on which way you're looking but not enough I would agree I'm always amused where there are some places where people are just completely surprised about black people being in their history. And I'm like, right. it's just because you erase them from your history. It doesn't mean yeah. they in your history. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that doesn't surprise me, but you're right. And, and I think if you extrapolate what you were doing with the other EU member states, like, absolutely, I know. And, and look, here's the thing. Your countries reflect the populations that you have, right? So there's some places I do not expect them to be necessarily racially diverse it would be nice if they're ethnically or tribally you know because they're different yeah. cultural groups, right it'd be nice if they were that but then there are places like the uk which you fully expect honestly uk france germany <laughs> you fully expect that yeah y'all need to get it together because you have the population like you have the populations that are yeah. that diverse and so i mean you're you're not in this you're not in the government internet you know that in that space anymore and you said you had gone into this position that took you to guatemala and you thought you were gonna be there for six months and then you ended up being there for four years was it that you didn't see yourself doing this type of work for the long haul or was it that you didn't it wasn't even a consideration that it was something that you could do like it, it didn't even occur to you you just thought it was a short stint I guess ultimately I'm like, yeah. why are you still not in diplomacy? <laughs> mm. Okay. So the, so initially it was a six month placement, but to, to do effective work, you know, you need to be there for a lot longer because there's such a important history to get your head around to be able to properly exchange with people. So it made sense that it became four years. Now, why am I not still in diplomacy or in government? I know exactly why. And that is because the big change point in my life where I was able to relate what I was doing and bring myself and fully show up as myself, as opposed to saying too dangerous, I just have to conform, was when I did my master's because I did my master's at a place called SOAS University that is renowned for critical perspectives on mainstream theory. And so I did for my master's international studies and I finally got to find all of these critical theories like critical perspectives on international relations that made having been working in it complete sense to me and I was like uh this is this relates so much more to what I've seen and experienced and what's actually going on than what you you know learn in an undergrad or meant to abide to you um finding those writers and again first of all I had to find them in relation to something detached from myself right international relations before I could then bring it to myself and think about racism and the ways that I'd internalized it but nonetheless it was freeing and it finally helped me fully understand that I was not seeing things in my head when I was a kid it wasn't something I had to push down it wasn't something that didn't happen and I was misinterpreting like these power structures and the powerful ways they affect us unequally are real and once I'd found that and written about it I basically found my voice and so after doing that I did briefly go back to government but I kind of <laughs> probably need to get out because I can't stand up in a room and advocate 
to that extent, you know, when when actually I think we're looking at the wrong thing, not really saying the full picture, I just couldn't get in line in the way that I wanted to. And that felt aligned to me. So that began the process, which I'm still in, of leading me towards the work that I'm doing now, which is basically gone from the systemic political, you know, how do we tackle inequality and, you know, all the challenges of the world systemically. I still acknowledge the systemic, but I'm moving increasingly towards the personal. And in my case, the familiar, like in the family, and, you know, really increasingly centering the child, because if you can get it right, you know, my whole theory is if we can get it right before that programming really sets in, there's such an opportunity for kids just to like, change the world and fly and do well themselves and not have to spend so much energy like I did and in my case I'm doing all that anti-blackness that I'd internalized or you know thinking there was something wrong with me so it was absolutely that masters and finding those those philosophers and thought leaders that cut across you know all social theory I mean, I've got to give you credit because it is somewhat brave to be in something and then realize "Mm." I don't think I can hang out with this real long haul because and, and and to make the change because yeah. on one hand I think someone listening to this would be like well it wasn't a good fit or it wasn't going to be a long term fit or it didn't fit with your life plan or vision plan but on the other hand mm. I mean let's be honest there's a prestige to being Absolutely. in diplomacy there's a prestige to being the foreign service there's a prestige to being able to live internationally depending on what your role is with a foreign service office unit right in a country yeah and and there are plenty of people who really want to do that mm-hmm. and don't have access, right? The people yeah. who know about it, who really want to do it, don't have access. So for you to say, hmm, I feel like this isn't aligning with my values or where I'm going. Yeah. Is, first of all, is brave to make the pivot. But I think what's even more interesting is that you made a pivot that allowed you to take what you had learned and what you'd seen and what you had experienced and put it into a different direction. I know you've made an allusion to this, but I, you know, you, you've got, a, you know, you've got your day job, right? Which yeah. <laughs> you'd have your day job, but there's also, there is also some coaching and some teaching and I am intrigued by this podcast. This is this a podcast? Yeah. This podcast name <laughs> um, that I'm like, uh, <laughs> tell me more about this, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess just on that, because I, I hear what you're saying, right? There's like absolutely a level of, I mean, there are many levels of privilege and there's a level of privilege in that I was in that space, right? And then I chose to move out. So the my mum, like a lot of people in my family would absolutely be like, you've thrown your career down the drain, what are you doing? But I'm not as brave as you think, Commander, because the way I feel is I did not have a choice. Like I was getting ill. I was getting ill um, and the way I interpreted that was as a misalignment. You know, when you feel like you feel it in your body that something is misaligned, that was what was happening and I was actually getting ill. And, you know, for me, it was actually just this continuation, I guess is what I'm trying to get across, of like being, of to be in such white spaces that only subscribe to one narrative which is you know anti-black at its core and I'm talking about in my family and in the theories that I had to subscribe to I'd start that was my whole childhood and that was damaging and traumatic and you know to continue that was unhealthy for me and you know there are loads of kind of like contextual factors that amplified that like for example um you know when I came back to the UK after doing my master's the government changed and so you know things were you know there were lots of comparisons made between Boris Johnson and Trump for example so it was getting harder and harder to say to myself I'm happy to go across the world and like defend these things and I really really wasn't um but yeah just to like be honest about that and say it wasn't just bravery like I I, I felt like I didn't have a choice basically um for me it was just that integration of self like bringing and acknowledging self and like allowing myself to bring in my lived experience as well as 
my research as well as my you know work experience and the way that it's come together is in what I'm doing now basically which is so the day job is um I work for an international children's charity on um kind of education programs for children that bring in child protection and health and all the things in underserved communities at the moment particularly in West Africa but um what I'm increasingly doing as well is moving into this coaching space and this is what I'm so passionate about which is really working with families that looked like look like minded to coach parents through how they can show up for kids of color when they're the only one so this could be you know parents um whose kids or parents who have gone through transracial adoption so that's why their kid, you know, might be the only black person in that family or mixed families. Um, I think in the US it's biracial because the themes, you know, and and I'm just so grateful that this research is really, really coming through now. There are so many parallels. And I know that there are so many different ways for a family to be mixed, but the parallels and themes, like the commonalities of, you know, this the the belonging question and the belonging issue that the kid goes through and how easy it is for hierarchy to creep in between okay the whiteness needs to be centered and the you know the brownness is a second class and and the ways in which that damages children's self-esteem mental health ability to learn you know who knew I certainly didn't that it wasn't just me like this is a thing and the research is really showing that so I think I because I went through that and I've had to have empathy for my own family, I'm able to bring that empathy to mums. And I understand that there's so much political work to be done on, you know, changing this at a political level and I'm here for it. But where I'm most passionate about is really working at that familial level and bringing that empathy and understanding and working with, you know, what the, the situation currently is and where people find themselves in that journey so that parents can essentially move their own feelings you know work through them faster so that they can show up for the kids on their identity journey do you find that uh, a lot of the the mothers particularly or I mean it could be parents actually in general you're working with are non-black that's what I'm focusing on at the moment so that's the um, so I was I was picking on that because I never said the name what's the name white mom <laughs> You know what I have so I so I'm I'm working on the episode so I haven't fully launched it but I want to call my podcast but I do need to test it with yeah, right, because right. maybe it will be your pitting but dear white mama bear yeah fair enough um and I guess you know for me it's it's coming from a place of empathy and a place of love because they need we need them to be in that space to be able to do the work I think if it's in a space of shaming and if it's in a space of like you know, calling out, there's absolutely time and place to call out. But my my goal is to get them to improve immediately. Right. <laughs> right? And, and I like, learn fast. Yeah. And I was gonna say there can be um that's a fine line, right? I feel like especially for black folks who want to share information that could be particularly helpful to particularly parents raising black children, right? And biracial children with a black identity. And I think I, I think there's I think you get on on some side nervousness because there are questions. Even and, and I where I'm coming with this is that even with a black expat, I have families who are completely not black who follow us because they, they're raising black children abroad, yeah. which is a whole, like I said, a whole other level yeah. of whatever, right? And I think there can be nervousness about asking questions and things in the sphere because you're like, oh God, I I don't look like the, this child. I'm asking the group of which this child comes from, and I don't want to come across as offensive and be sensitive. So so there's there's that little bit of fear. And then I mean, I think on the other side, I mean, once again, I'm also American, so, so yeah. I don't think there's so much more concern on the black side about calling stuff out. I think I think yeah. it's more. But I think to your point, I think you're trying to be in a way where it's receptive and, and so that it so that the change can happen. And I know folks who are like, oh, this change is going to happen whether you, whether yeah, you yeah. or not. We're yeah. not, we're not always as delicate. Some people, and, and, but, but here's the thing. I think that 
if anyone is ever coming from a place of, I really want to get this information to be transformational for my child and my family, if you are of the group that child identifies or comes from with, people are receptive to helping you because you are saying, I need help, right? Yeah. And so I think that the work that you are doing and the work that you're looking to do will be received because you are coming from a genuine place of, first of all, this is your lived experience. Yeah. Or you have a white mother, you know the impact both between your own personal experience and working in other spaces, what it looks like. I want to help you. I think that those who are in the place to receive and hear it will receive and hear it. That being said, there will always be that contingent <laughs> that, as you know, will feel like, well, why are we always got to talk about, well, we heard this in the States. Why do we always have to talk about race? Why is it always about race? Like we're all just one, <laughs> we're all one half big, happy family, which clearly we are not. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, so many things in that. So I guess on the, you know, one of the critiques that, is 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 can be made of what I'm doing. But I've been, I, you know, I've thought thought it through a lot. Is that it's not radical enough, right? Like people just need to get in line and get with the picture. And like, we've wasted many decades spelling things out. It's time to just get in line and just know these things. And what's been what I always think of the analogy I always think of is one that I used when I was in diplomacy, and that's like if you take civil society you have you can go from the very conservative organizations to the more radical as a whole if you take it as a whole the people who are more radical push everyone forwards right the people at the edges right so when you come together it's very effective and I'm clear that what I'm doing to some some people who are in that space you know and are saying I don't I don't have time you know like just get with it I'm not going to break this down for any more people I respect and I get that's not what I'm doing however and I'm consciously not doing that the way I have chosen to work is child-centered so the reality is that child is in that family now and unintentional harm is harmful and it can still be unintentional so that's what I'm working with I'm working with the unintentional harm that you know parents of course do in so many different kinds of ways and I find the most effective way of doing that is kind of circumventing that nervousness and you know inviting it and acknowledging it and acknowledging the journey that you know in this case white mums do go on so a lot of them I work with you know of course they knew racism existed and of course they understood it somewhat on an academic level on a theoretical level but the truth is once you have a baby and you know people start to say certain things to you and assume certain things about your child you go it's shocking you might have known it intellectually beforehand but it's absolutely devastating and shocking and you go through kind of what I could like like um, compared to a form of like grief (laughs) like the stages of grief right and what I do when I work people is try and support them to get through that faster so that we can really focus on let's create an approach so that you can really show up for your child because your child's going to go on this identity journey and you know it's in the water anti-blackness that's going to be absorbed so what can we do what can we put in place to rebalance that counteract that prepare them for bias um so that you know they they can still have even though the world is as it is i'm not saying that other people don't go off and change the world but i'm saying with the world as it is so they can they can still safeguard we can still safeguard their self-esteem their sense of belonging and help them create and have a positive racial identity because it is possible even in the context in which we live and for a lot of mums you know it's like this guilt around living in a predominantly white area okay they may feel that they can't you know change that that might be the right decision for the family for whatever reason but whatever the context is we can work with and there are things we can put in place to allow you to show up more for your child and you know the, the impact of that is just huge like as I say it's you know that when it chips away at that resilience, chips away at that self-esteem, you know, it's you're getting into mental health, you're getting into ability to learn because you know if the kid feels 
and this, this was me at one point as well so worried about getting things wrong because you, you know you can't there isn't space to how are you really going to take the risk to learn things and then in the teenagers you know you're getting into kind of you need that self-esteem and self-respect to be able to keep yourself safe and say no to things so I, I I guess the reason I've decided to take this approach is for me it's about impact and it's about the child and that's the way I think I can have the most impact for that child and I totally respect the more radical um approaches that are pushing for a better world and I my hope is that through doing this work with the families and 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 countering that inner anti-blackness from the beginning that will also give the child more space to then do the you know and let's change the world stuff as well so that's why I've taken the decision to approach it this way well here's the thing you definitely have your work cut out for you because (laughs) because the problem's not going and the issue's not going away and so you know it's going to be interesting to sort of see how your journey goes and how the different iterations of your work goes over the years as you build upon what you've seen and build upon what you've learned and build upon honestly who you come and interact with as well I think that that also shapes the with the clients that we have and so so here's always the last question I always have to ask folks uh especially those of you who are listening and are curious about the guest's work where can you be found like where are you in the interwebs yeah so um best place to find me on social media is Instagram and my um yeah my I didn't see that coming I was like yeah. oh, okay cool. I know I'm not the most technical I know that <laughs> do you know what it's where it's been I've been able to find the community find the yeah. bums you know we're already coming together and so I do these little videos um with tips and you know people ask me questions um and I suggest approaches um so really building that up so that's um yeah I can share my Instagram handle it's my name Motsabi Rupa um I've got a website where you can learn more about the coaching itself if you're interested um and also the program I've developed that's so a kind of mix of uh, coaching mentoring and some kind of educational modules and that's motsabirupa.com and then the podcast at the moment the name's still standing <laughs> Dear White Mama Bear um, should be out in the next month or so. Well, we'll have it all in the show notes and it'll be up on the Black cool. Expat website. So Amazing. if they're trying to reach out to you, you can be found there. This has been interesting. I, I have enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for coming and sharing a bit of your story. It's always interesting to hear people's upbringings and, and to see how it impacts the work that they do moving forward. And so yeah, I appreciate Thank it. You. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. It's been brilliant. And like, you know, as I said to you before we started recording, I just was so inspired to come on because this is what I needed. What need. And I started <laughs> my international, you know, work. So thank you for doing this. It's needed. It's absolutely needed. And it's like a real privilege to be here. So thank you for your time. You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.